the Midtown Detroit studios of WDET. This is Detroit Today. Today, we're going to talk about kids and money, specifically the money that families have been getting for their children under the expanded child tax credit, one of the federal government's efforts to soften the economic consequences of the COVID-19 pandemic. Now that the money is going away, what will families do? And how do we continue to try to pull families out of poverty with credits or incentives? We'll discuss it all next on Detroit Today. But first, the news from NPR. Detroit Today is supported by Michigan School of Psychology in Farmington Hills, educating psychologists today who will transform our world tomorrow. Learn more at msp.edu. Today and welcome to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. We hear politicians and business leaders say all the time that the kids, the children, are our future. But our investments in children compared to other developed countries is really pretty pathetic. We have a patchwork of supports, or no supports at all, to help people with childcare, pre-K, or paid family leave. In other words, if you have kids, you're pretty much on your own in this country. But during the summer of 2021, something different happened. As part of the American Rescue Plan, the child tax credit was expanded, lifting 40% of children out of poverty. That's almost half the number of kids who were living in poverty before. But that expansion was only allowed for a limited time, and now it's gone. While it was included in the big Build Back Better plan, that piece of legislation has now stalled in Congress. And all of this leaves us wondering, why haven't families protested losing this money more loudly. What are the odds that the child tax credit could be expanded again? And what's the best way for our government to help alleviate the suffering of children and families who live in poverty? Here to talk with us about all of this is Elaine Maji, who is Senior Fellow in the Urban Brookings Tax Policy Center at the Urban Institute. Elaine, welcome to Detroit Today. Thanks so much for having me. So to get started, uh, what is the child tax credit and how was it expanded in 2021? The child tax credit is a program that's been around for a long time, since 1997. And in 2018, it became an almost universal benefit. It was $2,000 per child under age 17. And in 2021, um, three things happened. The first is the credit was increased. So children under six could receive up to $3,600. Children ages six to seven could receive $3,000. And this is the first time we included um, 17-year-old children in the benefit. And most importantly, we made the credit fully refundable. And that's sort of a wonky way of saying we let even low-income families get the full $3,000 or $3,600 benefit. Prior to that, low-income families actually got the lowest benefits from the tax credit because it phased in with income. And that meant that we had 27 million children who were living in households that didn't receive the $2,000 credit simply because their parents didn't earn enough. Um, that all changed in 2021. And then the other thing that um, hopefully many of your listeners experienced was monthly payments that you alluded to. So from July to December, rather than waiting to pay the credit at tax time as part of people's tax refund, we advanced those payments. And so people received um, monthly payments um, to you know that they used to help meet their basic needs. And uh, talk about why 
tax credits are the right tool to try to do what they were doing or the wrong tool to try to do so what they this, were doing. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. So in this case, um, the program was stood up very quickly. You know, essentially the legislation passes in the spring and uh, there's three months to get the credits out the door. The IRS is really the only agency that has a robust database um, that includes information for almost all families with children. It doesn't include everyone. You know, very low-income families are often not in the tax system, um, but it's much more comprehensive. Social Security is the other logical agency, but those, um, well, Social Security knows how many children there are. They have no idea where they're living. We don't give address information that stays up to date with the Social Security. So in the short term, the IRS was the agency that made the most sense. They were also coming off of delivering those economic impact payments. And so they'd gotten sort of good at, you know, delivering um, one-time payments to families. And the impact of this, I, as I said in the open, it seems to have lifted about 40% of children who are living in poverty out of it. That's a pretty dramatic move. Um, talk about what that means to, to the economy. It was probably the most dramatic um, decrease in poverty that we've had, um, certainly in the recent past. Um, immediately when those payments started going out, we looked at survey data and saw that food insecurity among families with children had dropped by more than 25%. So that meant children were able to, um, you know, go to school ready to learn. And um, we also saw um, people reporting that they were meeting their basic needs with this money. Um, middle-income families were using the money to also pay down debt and generally put themselves in a better financial position. And now that we're losing it, does that mean we will see a, a corresponding increase again in, in child poverty? Uh, I think a lot of people who even support the idea of these kinds of economic incentives say the idea is to get people started, to get them going, and that you wouldn't keep it in place forever, that it would it would kind of jumpstart people's ability to move themselves up the economic ladder. Uh, what, what will happen now that this tax credit is going away? So in January of 22, um, researchers at Columbia University um, estimated that child poverty, you know, increased 40%, exactly what you would expect, sort of the gains that we had were undone. Um, I think when we wonder what will happen long term is we have to um, ask ourselves, what's the purpose of the policy? Is the purpose of the policy to encourage parents to work? Well, we have, you know, credits, the earned income tax credit, namely, that does that already. Or is the purpose to actually provide aid to children? And if the purpose is to assist children, then, you know, I'm less concerned about um, what's happening with their parents. There is a lot of survey data, though, that showed parents didn't stop working when they received the payments. In fact, they were able, in some cases, to increase working. They were able to use those um, that money to pay for child care. So it's awfully difficult to find a job if you don't have child care available to you. We also... Um, I noticed people saying they were investing in education for both them, their children and themselves, um, which positions them better in the labor market as well. Um, it's certainly true that a few people, um, when they receive the payments, might work less. What we notice is it tends to be um, mothers with um, very young children, um, where there are a lot of difficulties associated with working. And it also tends to be um, married couples, where one earner might work a little bit less it's not a huge number of people, but it certainly does happen in some cases. Hmm. We're talking about child poverty and the efforts to end child poverty in our country, specifically uh, the child tax credit expansion, which uh, died recently. It was part of a stimulus package that uh, President Joe Biden got passed uh, when he was uh, first, in, first in office. Um, Give us a call and let us know uh, what your experience was with the expanded tax credit. Uh, did it help you uh, 
maintain a higher level of of lifestyle? Did it did it move you up the economic ladder to be getting that extra money for the children who live in your home? Uh, tell us what you're doing now that we don't have that credit any longer. That that credit has expired. Uh, have things gotten tighter? Have you had to make different kinds of choices about how you spend your money? Have you had to give up some things because the tax credit made them possible? Also, give us a sense of what you think we owe our children as a society. Uh, What do you think children and parents and families deserve to make sure that not only they don't fall behind economically, but that they can get ahead, uh, that they can move up the economic ladder. What kind of supports do you think we need to put in place? Think about some of the things that go on in other countries. Should we be thinking about adopting some of those things? Uh, Also, why is helping families now more important than it has been uh, in the past? In other words, what's what's it about this moment uh, that stands out from previous times uh, in our history. As always, uh, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page or to Twitter and put comments there, and uh, we can work you into the conversation that way. Um, I, I want to, Elaine, talk about what would what the effect would be long-term if we had kept the expanded child tax credit in in place and kept it not for a short period of time, but say over decades, would it eventually be something that we didn't need? In other words, this argument that people have about hands up, right, instead of hands out. uh, And I know I I have real problems with those those issues, you know, uh, with that kind of thinking in the first place. But but this idea that over time, uh, eliminating the need to eliminate poverty by, by keeping something in, 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 like this in place, how, how real is that? So one thing I want to um, note is that people's incomes are changing year over year. And so it's not often the case or always the case that people are low income forever. They often are experiencing periods where they're out of the labor force, often due to caregiving needs, sometimes disability And so we do see people, you know, bouncing up and down. Um, But we have a lot of research that shows that investing in children, particularly young children, um, gives us a lifetime of benefits. We see that um, brain development is um, different in low-income children's um, households than in high-income children. We um, see that when we support children, children not in poverty are more likely to um, attend school. They're more likely to graduate from high school. They are more likely to get a um, higher-paying job. They're more likely to go to school. They're less likely to interact with the criminal justice system. And, you know, I think it's, it's pretty clear that those things aren't just good for the individual. Those things are good for society. And so when we invest in children and give them, you know, a better chance at a good start, then, you know, society as a whole receives those rewards. And that re- return on investment, can you give us some examples? Uh, there Are there studies that show what that return on investment would be, what the consequences would be of giving more to, to families to help, them, to help them move up? So we see that um, people get better paying jobs. Those better paying jobs tend to yield um, better tax revenues later down the line. We see um, higher education, which, you know, gives us a better trained workforce. We see reduced interaction with the criminal justice system. So we can expect that we'd see savings on on that side. We also see that people um, rely less on other income support programs later in life if they've had a good start. And so we think, you know, there's some economists have estimated that for every dollar you invest in a low-income child, you're going to get $8 back um, later on. So it's a pretty good payoff. Um, not to mention, there's certainly a moral case, too, that we ought to be, you know, taking care of, you know, the lowest income people in our society, particularly children. Hmm. Uh, and, and finally, I want to give you a chance to talk about 
the things that you think we ought to be doing as a nation uh, to eliminate child poverty, to lift families out of out of poverty beyond the the, the child tax credit. Um, you know, the policy questions that that um, that I think we don't often talk about, uh, but but that are kind of right in front of our face. So I think there will always be a place for providing some sort of cash support. And that's because um, people's needs are incredibly diverse. And so it's hard to build enough programs to meet all those needs. It's also very cumbersome um, to expect someone to apply for multiple programs, you know, a heating assistance program, a child care assistance program, um, some sort of rental assistance. And so what happens in our current system is people fall through the cracks. And so a cash benefit can sort of um, offset and, you know, patch up some of those holes. But the other things are equally important. So we ask ourselves, why are people low income? Well, in many cases, their educations were cut short. So education support programs can, you know, help people long term. There's also difficulties with, you know, getting to work because you have childcare needs. So childcare is important. And then I think, you know, if nothing else, the pandemic certainly taught us that paid family leave is incredibly important. Um, ideally, when people have an intense caregiving need, they can drop out of the labor market temporarily and come right back in when they're ready. And so programs that allow that transition are important. And then finally, I would say we need to find a way to create jobs that not only guarantee people enough hours and security that they can, you know, live live their lives, but also that promote, you know, something more. So, you know, not these dead-end jobs. People need opportunities to move into higher-paying jobs. Um, and that, you know, all those things together would provide, you know, long-term supports for families. Mm. Okay, Elaine Mogg, Senior Fellow in the Urban Brookings Tax Policy Center at the Urban Institute. It was really great to have you here for this conversation. Thanks so much for joining us on Detroit Today. Thank you. Coming up, we are going to continue this conversation about the expanded child tax credit, which uh, expired and is being phased out. We're going to talk about the effects of phasing out the expanded CTC for Michiganders and the possibility for expanding the earned income tax credit here in Michigan. Stay tuned for more Detroit Today. Bringing you news that matters. Stories that impact your life. Music from the Motor City and around the world. This is 1019 WDET. Detroit's NPR station. You're listening to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. States don't exclusively rely on the federal government to fight poverty and boost economic opportunities. They also have a few levers of their own that they can pull to improve the lives of families. One of those policy levers is the state's earned income tax credit. Now, under Governor Rick Snyder, that tax credit was cut from 20% to 6%, in part to help facilitate a massive tax cut for businesses here in the state of Michigan. Now, Governor Gretchen Whitmer is considering increasing that credit back to 10%. Still half of what it was, but more than what it is. Here to talk about about what this tax credit is and why it matters and how it fits into the greater context of the conversation about child poverty is Rachel Richards. She is Fiscal Policy Director for the Michigan League for Public Policy. Rachel, welcome to Detroit Today. Thank you for having me. So before we get to the EITC, uh, I, I want to talk a little more about the child, the expanded child tax credit, the expanded federal child tax credit, which we were talking about in the previous conversation, and what it did here in Michigan specifically, nationally, 
uh, the stats say it lifted 40 percent of children out of poverty. What'd that look like here? So in Michigan, we saw about 114,000 Michigan children um, that were lifted out of the poverty line by the expanded uh, child tax credit. Um, And uh, in total, with the, the phase out, we have about 249,000 Michigan kids who are at risk of either slipping below the poverty line or deeper into poverty if the child tax credit expansion isn't extended. Wow. Um, And so what are you projecting uh, now that it's been that it's been phased out? I mean, is this the kind of thing that we need state action, I suppose, to to counter other than uh, raising the EITC again? So we're still, I mean, we're still hopeful that, you know, Congress and, um, you know, President Biden can come together on some sort of deal to uh, permanently extend the improvements that were made under the American Rescue Plan Act um, for this, the, the CTC. Um, as you, you know, heard from your previous um, speakers, you know, it did have a, a massive impact uh, nationwide and um, a huge impact on our states. Um, I mean, here in Michigan, um, based on kind of the census pulse survey data that we saw about 91% of households under 35,000 in Michigan used their CTC for basic needs. Um, and then 94% used it either for basic needs or education costs. So we are still hopeful um, that, you know, that there's can be some agreement made um, on the expanded child tax credit. Um, but there are things that we can do statewide to help improve poverty and especially child poverty um, in the state. Right now, um, you know, budget negotiations are ongoing. Um, the governor had released her proposal back in February. And at this point, the House and the Senate are, are working on their proposals. Some of the, the things that we would look at would be, you know, improvements to our cash assistance policies. Um, you know, our cash assistance um, program hasn't really seen any improvements since about 2008. That was the last year that um, our um, basic cash assistance um, payment standard was uh, increased. Um, and we haven't really seen any additional movement there. We have incredibly low eligibility um, levels for our cash assistance policies, um, which has kind of caused a precipitous drop um, in, in cases um, to the point where about 80% of our uh, cash assistance recipients are actually kids. Mm. Um, So the governor has recommended some um, very important first steps in in improving our cash assistance policies within her budget. She's recommending essentially a $100 supplemental payment per month for kids under the age of six, you know, kind of acknowledging that, you know, our youngest kids do require some significant costs with diapers, um, you know, um, sometimes formula for for young kids, um, clothing. I mean, I know my kid when he was young. You know, we would have to buy him new clothes every every couple of months because of how quickly he was growing. Mm. Um, so that is kind of an important first step. Um, we can also see you know improvements in um, in helping ensure access to safe, affordable housing, um, healthy food, and clean water could really help improve uh, lives of of Michiganders and especially Michiganders with low incomes. Mm. Uh, I'm talking with Rachel Richards. She is uh, fiscal policy director for the Michigan League for Public Policy. We're talking about child poverty, uh, the expanded federal child tax credit, which expired and is being phased out. Uh, It lifted about 40% of children in this country out of poverty. What will happen to them now that the child tax credit goes back to what it was before? Uh, We're also talking about the Earned Income Tax Credit, uh, which was cut here a few years ago from 20% to 6% under Governor Rick Snyder. Why did that happen and what was the effect of it? And now that Governor Gretchen Whitmer wants to increase it to 10%, what would that do for Michigan families? We want to hear from you during this conversation as well. Uh, Call and tell us what you think we ought to be doing as a nation, as a state, to lift more families out of poverty? What do you think children, parents, and families deserve to ensure that they not only don't fall behind, but can get ahead? What should uh, the, the infrastructure of government be doing or look like 
in order to prevent child poverty, to alleviate the effects of child poverty? Uh, and how would you invest uh, in children? What would a world look like where we really invested in our children according to you? What kind of future would that bring us? Uh, why do you think we have such a hard time coming up with ways to really invest in families and children. As always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Facebook and Twitter, put comments there, and we can work you into the conversation that way. Especially when I hear from folks who uh, were beneficiaries of the expanded child tax credit. What did that what did that do for your economic outlook? How did that change uh, your pocketbook issues uh, in your household? Um, also, if you were someone who receives the earned income tax credit, uh, the state and the federal uh, version of that, what did the cut in the EITC mean to you a few years ago? Uh, did that make it harder to make ends meet? Uh, would you Are you supporting the idea of uh, raising it again to 10%, still half of what it was before Governor Rick Snyder cut it, but uh, but more than what we're putting into it now. As always, the number here on the phones, again, is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Facebook and Twitter, put comments there, and uh, we'll work you into the conversation. Uh, before we get to listeners, Rachel, I want to put some of those questions to you. Uh, tell us about the EITC, what it does, and what the effect was of cutting it by more than half, uh, as Governor Rick Snyder did. Absolutely. So the, the earned income tax credit is, you know, one of the state's um, kind of best, I mean, and even the, net, the the federal EITC is one of the state's kind of best, um, you know, poverty fighting tools that we have within the, the tax toolkit that we have. Um, it is a tax credit for workers and families with low incomes to help them meet basic spending needs. Um, and you're right. I mean, back, you know, in 2011, the tax credit was 20% of the federal credit. We simply piggyback off of the federal earned income tax credit. So for example, let's say, you know, uh, at tax time, the your tax form determines that you get a $1,000 uh, federal earned income tax credit. Well, back in 2011, we simply took 20% of that. So you would get a $200 state supplement associated with that. And then as part of, you know, both a, a budget Balancing Act back in 2011. I mean, obviously, state finances were were very different in 2011 than they look today. Um, and then, as part of you know a, a massive tax reform proposal that cut taxes on on businesses um, and increased taxes on on workers, on retirees, and on families themselves, um, that EITC the EITC was slashed to six percent. So. Assuming that $1,000 federal tax credit, you're now looking at a $60 state supplement, um, mm. which is, uh, you know, a very significant cut um, cut to the credit. So yeah. what, what we know is kind of uh, based on tax year 2019 data, um, about 738,400 families statewide received an average credit of $150, and this helped put about $110 million back in Michigan's economy. And that's at the 6% rate. So, you know, families that are receiving the credit generally are spending it in their local economies on things like groceries, um, you know, everyday needs. They're using it to, you know, put it back into childcare, um, you know, make a car repair or, you know, um, again, kind of just, just basic needs itself. So, um, you know, a lot of them are, are getting their credit and then putting it right back into their local economies. Yeah. Um, so, you know, if if the credit were back at that 20% level using the, the $150 average that we have, um, it would be closer to about $500 on average for these families. Um, and actually Senator Wayne Schmidt has a bill in the Senate that would phase in an increase of up to 30% of the federal credit. And based on that $150 average, families would be seeing an average of about $750 for a wow. tax credit. Wow. Again, 313-577-1019 is the number here on the phones. Let's start today with David in Southfield. David, uh, what's on your mind? 
problem is that what we what we're doing is that we're putting band-aids on a bleeding wound. I'm a physician, so this is something I'm familiar with. And what happens is the problem. One of the problems is that we do we is the problem of having strong, stable families, uh, strong, normal marriages uh, with stable families, and this would significantly reduce the family stress uh, mm. because a lot of persons uh, only one family uh, uh, situations and. They can't provide for uh, for the family, and if, when you have two people working and helping the children, you're going to have much better uh, two is better than one, and you're going to have a much better and more stable family and better economics and better investment for the future. So a lot of it has to do with a basic disease that we call family instability. And I think that whatever we can do to improve family stability will improve the economy and everything else. Mm. David, I appreciate the call. I don't agree with uh, even some of the descriptors that that you use there, Uh, stable, normal families. I'm not sure what what that means or what that is. uh, you know, families come in lots of different, uh, lots of different variations. But but I don't quibble with the idea that, of course, two incomes are better than one. And uh, when you're talking about raising a family, especially, uh, that matters. But uh, Rachel Richards, I want to give you a chance to react to what David's saying here. You know, and I'll agree with you know Stephen with your premise that you know families come in kind of all you know. We all look very different, um, and you know, there's it's there's really no you know, unfortunately, that's kind of what what it is at this point. So what we at the league are trying to do is you know make sure that we're we're taking a look at the the Michigan families and residents that we have right now, um, and to be able to provide them the support that they need in order to access opportunity, access a high quality education, access, you know, basic health care um, and basic services. So, you know, what can we do at, at a state level and even at the federal level to really help improve the lives of Michigan families who are struggling um, and to help them get, you know, uh, an equitable recovery and help them get access to to everything that, um, that they deserve. Yeah. Uh- Talk just a little bit about how other countries, particularly countries in the West, approach this. Uh, and I, part of part of what I'm trying to get at here is that the the differentiation among families is something that's common around the globe. That that families do come in all kinds of uh, variations, and and that, that there are lots of different. Uh, ways to think of what is a family. Um, but what's not common is the struggle that families in this country have. In other words, in other countries, they f- have figured a way to provide more support to families, even when they are uh, uh, there's a single income earner, even when they don't look like what we might describe as, or as, as David described as normal, and again, I, I'm not sure what that word even means, but uh, it's, not that, it's not that there aren't ways to do this, it's that we haven't embraced those ways and maybe aren't even thinking of them. Well, I think, you know, I mean, obviously every country has its own struggles. Every country has, you know, kind of its its own, um, you know, things that they're dealing with um, and, you know, pros and cons um, of, of living there. Um, you know, there are, are some countries who have implemented, you know, they have kind of robust tax uh, revenue systems um, that allow them to be able to provide, you know, a significant amount of services um, to their to their to the residents. Things like, you know, basic healthcare access um, or universal healthcare access in some of the other countries, um, you know, and. So it's really, you know, about taking kind of an individualized approach as to, you know, what um, what those countries need uh, to really help, um, you know, the the families that live there and their residents. So, um, you know, every like I said, everyone kind of deals with their own own struggles um, and uh, and their own needs. When we come back, we're going to continue this conversation about child poverty and what we can do at the state and national level. 
to alleviate more of the child poverty that exists here in uh, the United States. Uh, as always, we want to really get going again on the phones. 313-577-1019 is the number here. Call and tell us what you think we ought to be doing to alleviate child poverty. Should we have extended the expansion of the federal child tax credit? Should we never have cut into the state earned income tax credit? Uh, how do we fix those things and what other things should be on the table? 313-577-1019. You can also go to Facebook and Twitter, put comments there. We'll be right back after more Detroit Today. This is Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. My guest right now is Rachel Richards. She's Fiscal Policy Director for the Michigan League for Public Policy, which is a policy institute dedicated to economic opportunity for everyone. We're talking about child poverty and family poverty, how we lift more families out of poverty. We're talking about the expiring federal tax credit, uh, child tax credit expansion, uh, the cut into the earned income tax credit here in the state of Michigan a few years ago, how those things affect the fight against poverty. I want to hear from you as well. Uh, what do we owe our children? What do we owe families uh, in the United States? Uh, what should we be doing to expand opportunity uh, for people who don't have it, uh, especially families? Uh, 313 577 1019 is the number here on the phones. That's 313-577-1019. You can also get, uh, get to Twitter or to Facebook, put comments there, and we can try to include you that way. <clears throat> Dave on Twitter uh, writes, getting the child tax credit every month was huge for us. We have a bio kid and a foster kid. The time required to transport kids to and from school and for foster and parental visits has prevented my wife from returning to work. So the extra dollars helped quite a bit. Uh, I imagine there are lots of stories like that about the effect of the expanded child tax credit. Call and tell us about it. Write to us the way Dave did, uh, and we'll include you in the conversation. Let's go to Chris in Detroit. Chris, welcome to the show. Hi. So one hey, of the things that happened with me, um, well, I don't have kids, but when they cut the tax, when they cut Michigan's tax credit, what happened is I felt I, I be I literally felt under the poverty line because I didn't have the credit anymore. Mm. So people that make anywhere between twenty six and thirty two thousand dollars a year, when they when they we did have that tax credit, when we did have that tax credit, automatically fell fell right under the poverty line, which really wasn't fair. Yeah. It's like it's like the reverse it's the reverse Robin Hood. You you t you tax you tax the poor. I mean you tax the poor and feed the rich. I yeah, Chris, I, I'm really glad you called and talked about that because one of the things I remember so vividly uh, when Governor Rick Snyder was talking about doing this was that he said that the the state tax credit didn't make that much of a difference. That that the thing that was really mattering to people. Uh, in that, in those economic categories, was the federal tax credit, and that that was still uh, in place. Of course, that didn't make very much sense, even when he said it. But your call and your description of what happened to you is a really great example of how wrong he was. That it did matter to some people, and in your case, it it was the difference between living in poverty and and not. And and again, emphasize uh, in your minds what we did that for. We did that so that businesses in the state could get a massive, a massive tax cut. So Chris is right that this was transference of capital, of wealth, of tax burden uh, from the rich onto, uh, onto the poor. Uh, Rachel, it, it, really, it really just stands out, I think, as terrible, terrible public policy to have made to have made those choices back in, uh, I think it was uh, 2011 or 2012. 
Uh, absolutely, and we would definitely agree that you know cutting the the state EATC um, was you know did a huge disservice to our families. I mean, you had a have a, a number. We have a number of families who are you know kind of right on the edge of tipping into poverty or even like bringing themselves out of poverty, and you know. The, the $150 that we have on average right now, um, like I said, back at that 20% level, you're looking at closer to uh, $500, which you know could go a long way to just helping those families who are right on the edge to bring themselves out of poverty and really help all of those families that are receiving it make ends meet. I mean, the, the $350 you know, impact, you know, it, is significant. Um, I mean, it can pay for childcare. It can pay for a, a car repair or you know a set of new tires to help families you know um, be able to get to work, um, have access to reliable transportation. It can pay for utility costs. I mean, I know that you know especially with um, you know the inf what we're dealing with in terms of inflation and other rising costs. I mean that the increased uh, EITC could really go a, a long way to helping families make ends meet. Again, Chris, uh, I'm really sorry about what uh, what happened for you, uh, but I really appreciate your call and and your sharing that with our with our listeners. Let's go to Asa in Southfield. Asa, what's on your mind? Hello, you guys can hear me okay? We can. Okay, cool. Yeah, so I think the best way to pull people out of poverty is to uh, have a money that's backed by a store of value as opposed to having a fiat currency that is backed by nothing. When currencies become backed by nothing, it, it leaves them open to uh, inflation and deflation, which is just basically market manipulation. And uh, when big banks and corporations and, and, in fact, central banks that that um, are allowed to uh, inflate and deflate currencies because they control the money and the government doesn't control its own money, then you have a hard time having a uh, a reserve currency which is going to to last and pull people out of poverty. Hmm. Uh, Asa, that's a really interesting way to to be thinking about this in terms of money and, and currency and the, and the values that, that, that define them. Uh, Rachel, I'm, I'm wondering what, what your reaction is to, to Chris's point, or Ace's point, I'm sorry. Uh, so, I mean, I'll admit that that's an area that I haven't actually looked into significantly, um, but, you know, I, obviously absent a, a change at the, the federal level, um, you know, we are kind of tied into the the policies that we have, you know, at the the state level to to really try to attack poverty um, at, at a state level. So, um, you know, that is, uh, you know, it is a, an interesting thought, and it's an area I might have to start diving into a little bit to determine that. Um, I will say, you know, based on the the fact that we all know that the federal government, you know they don't necessarily need to have a balanced budget like the state does. Like the state every year, we need to have a, a balanced budget where, you know, expenditures are, you know, at or less than the revenues that are coming in. Um, and the federal government doesn't have that type of, of situation. Um, and they are allowed to, to run at a deficit. Um, however, we saw, you know, over the last couple of years, as we've dealt with COVID, um, you know, especially with the American Rescue Plan Act, uh, the, the state and local fiscal recovery funds that are coming in, um, you know, are an opportunity to, um, make some significant investments in the state that we weren't haven't been able to make um over the past you know several decades um and you know without uh, without the ability for for the federal government to be able to provide these you know we would we wouldn't have these historic opportunities to really look at how to equitably equitably invest in our residents yeah yeah uh, again asa thanks very much for the call let's go to bernadette in old radford Bernadette, welcome to the show. Good morning. Hi. My thought is that for uh, it's related to, to voting. For those people who receive assistance, voting, or for everybody, but especially for them, they should vote for politicians who support these policies. You just can't sit at home and hoping that out of the goodness of their heart, they'll do it. Um we don't seem to be able to get anything through except for tax cuts. 
and for example, this $400 that's going to be refunded, that money could best be spent in this effort to reduce poverty hmm. because $400 won't even buy you a set of tires. Yeah. <laughs> You're right about that, uh, Bernadette. Uh, I really appreciate the call. Uh, Rachel Richards, I wonder, uh, I, I think Bernadette's coming up with some really interesting ideas there about different ways to, to, to give more voice to children and, and children's issues. But I think it raises the question in some ways, um, who does speak for children now? Uh, why are there not more, I guess, uh, protests about this, uh, this child tax credit expiration at the, at the federal level? Uh, why was the ITC so easy to cut in more than half for, for Governor Rick Snyder. It, it does seem like there is a missing voice in, in the conversation. And I mean, I would agree with you that, you know, it is for families that, you know, are struggling, um, for families that are living at or below the poverty line, you know, for families that are struggling to, to get by. I mean, doing something as uh, like, for example, coming and testifying in a committee on, um, you know, on their own behalf to, um, or even having time to, to make an, a meeting with a, a state or a federal lawmaker, you know, when a, a family is working, when somebody is working or when a family is struggling to access childcare, um, you know, with all of the barriers that our state and federal policies have put in place for, for families that are low with low incomes with, for our communities of color, um, for, um, you know, families that are, you know, just struggling to make ends meet. We've, you know, our state, and federal policies have put these historic barriers in place that makes it difficult to kind of, you know, access, um, you know, the the opportunity and the the ability to to really try to influence um, policy going forward. Mm. So I am, you know, we we the league, you know, we we do try to provide uh, some of that voice. Um, the expanded child tax credit is something that we have worked on um, and are, you know, continuing to watch what happens within Congress um, and are continuing to advocate that Congress, you know, does take action on, on those um, American Rescue Plan expansions of the child tax credit. Um, the state earned income tax credit is something that we at the league are also very, uh, we're working on um, very closely right now. Like I said, Senator Schmidt has a bill in the Senate. It got a, a great hearing in December. Um, you know, advocacy organizations like the league, as well as, um, you know, some of our, our statewide partners. Um, but also we saw a significant support from business community. Um, we saw, you know, support from the Grand Rapids and Detroit chambers, um, support from the Michigan Restaurant and Lodging Association, um, and a number of other business organizations have come out in support of expanding the state EATC. Mm -hmm. um, so it's really about trying to get um, you know, folks and get organizations on board with the policies to really help uh, change hearts and minds within our state and federal legislatures. I, I wonder if you can talk just a little about what will happen or what the effect would be if the state Senate and House uh, agreed to, to move this back to 10 percent as the governor wants, but then also talk about what would happen if we pushed it back 20%, which is where it was before it was cut. What would the, what difference would those things make? Um, well, as I said, you know, I, I mean, my assumption is all of this will ultimately be a, a budget decision between, you know, state um, Senate and state House um, leadership and the governor's office. Um, because we have a state senator who is supportive of, um, you know, who has a bill, um, you know, and has gotten a hearing on it, and because the governor has recommended, um, you know, increasing the credit herself, we're hoping that this becomes part of the negotiations once, you know, all of the budget um, negotiations are, are being worked out. Um, so, you know, we, of course, are obviously fully advocating for, you know, uh, 
at least restoration, if not going up to the 30 percent um, you know, level in Senator Schmidt's bill. Mm-hmm. Um, and this would be, I mean, like I said, at the at the 30 percent level, you're looking at on average about seven hundred and fifty dollars for the for families receiving the earned income tax credit. Um, and this would put it back into Michigan's economy is about five hundred and fifty million dollars, because as I said, you know, families that are receiving it are using it you know, they spend roughly half of their earned income tax credits based on in the re, in the research that's been done nationally on things like groceries and child expenses. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, they use the, you know, the, some of the rest to do things like home repairs and car repairs, kind of some of that asset building that really needs to be done in order to, to help um, families, you know, make ends meet. So, um, you know, boosting the credit, um, what it would have a significant impact on on a family's ability to you know pay a utility bill, um, you know buy groceries, you know buy clothing for kids, um, or you know like I said, just kind of make ends meet. Yeah, yeah. I mean basics. Uh, that that that's the thing that uh, always catches my eye when you look at these things. The way that families spend this money is on things that you can't imagine them going without and. Uh, without these kinds of credits and things, some families do have to figure out uh, have to figure out other ways to make ends meet. Okay, Rachel Richards of the Michigan League for Public Policy it was really great to have you here with us on Detroit Today. Thanks so much for joining. Thank you so much. It's going to do it for us today. Come back tomorrow when we're going to talk with author Majora Carter about what it means to stay in your hometown and what it looks like to try to improve it. Really interesting conversation. Detroit Today is produced by Jake Neer and Sam Corey. Our program director is Joan Isabella. Our technical director and engineer is Matthew Trevethan. And Detroit Today's music is created by Sam Bobian and Will Sessions. I want to give a shout out to the folks at KBIA in Columbia, Missouri, which is where I am. They're making it possible through studio space and engineering help for me to stay on the air with you there in Detroit while I'm here. This is 1019 WDETFM, Detroit's NPR station, your connection to news, music, and conversation. We'll talk again tomorrow.